Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Writing does not dictate a time frame. It's as mysterious to me now as it was when I was 16, 17 years old. I don't know what retirement means because there's no time frame for a writer. I may decide I don't want to write anymore, so okay, I'm finished writing. But that doesn't mean it's going to turn off. All it means is I'm going to lie there and toss and turn, and sentences are going to go through my head as they always do and sooner or later I'm going to pick up the pen and write. I have no illusions about writing. It's not something I do, it's something I'm driven to do and I don't fully understand it. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is Season 2, Episode 11. It's the second part of a two-part conversation with Chaim Potok, Giving Shape to Turmoil. Of course, this interview was originally published in the Mars Hill Review in 1996. Chaim Potok died in 2002, and so this encore presentation is being read by Rabbi Brian Newman. Because this is such a weighty and philosophical interview, I thought I'd lighten things up a bit and share one of my most embarrassing moments that actually occurred during this interview. As it happened, I arrived at 8 a.m. in Marion, Pennsylvania, right on the outskirts of Philadelphia, where Potok and his wife Adina lived in a beautiful Tudor home. I was welcomed in by Mrs. Potok, and she offered me coffee and ushered me into Heim's study. On one side of that room, there were expressionist paintings, and on the other side, there were walls and walls of books. In the middle of that room, there was deep shag carpeting and some chairs that looked like they were from the 1970s. You may recall thin wrought iron rails with canvas as the seats. I sat down in one of the chairs with my coffee, saucer, and cup next to me, and Chaim Potok said in his deep Brooklyn bass voice, Are you sure you want to sit in one of those chairs? And I said, Yeah, I'm uh, very comfortable. At which point I sat and sipped on my coffee. A few moments later, Chaim Potok said to me, Are you sure you want to sit in one of those chairs? I thought it was a little odd that he asked again, but I said, uh, I'm quite comfortable. I turned on the tape recorder, an old cassette back in the day, and as the interview began and our conversation got underway, I picked up the coffee cup, finished the last few sips, and began to relax and leaned back in my chair. 
at which point the chair tipped over backwards, head over heels. I knocked over the table next to me, the coffee cup and saucer flying over backwards. Mortified, I tried to compose myself, the tape recorder still going. I stood up, brushed myself off, as it were, and Potok looked at me and said with a totally straight face, That's why I asked you if you were sure you wanted to sit in that chair. And then he smiled and we continued as if nothing had happened. So as you listened to part two, it's my hope that you enjoy Chaim Potok's thinking and that you're drawn to want to read his books. My favorite, of course, is My Name is Asher Lev. So let's jump into my conversation, part two, with Chaim Potok. When you talk about what could be, is there a sense of the original image of God? Oh, yes, absolutely. There's a sense of an origin of things. And my feeling is that the biblical image is a magnificent metaphor of that feeling or sense that we have of the mysterious origin of things. That is the quintessential map making. It's so rich that it has forever changed the mindset of our species. Is it ontologically true? Well, the fundamentalists will say yes. Someone who knows a great deal about the history of Jewish thought will probably say it has profound value in the way it has set human, the human mind in a certain direction. But that is the truth. And for me, that's truth enough. Whether or not the ontological reality is there. That's right. Are you saying that whether or not the existence of it all is real isn't as important as the metaphor that actually guides your life? It's the richness of it. That is an awesome, awesome reality. I, I can't step beyond the richness of that and move to the other side. Do you know that in the Hebrew Bible there isn't a single mention of God as he or she or it truly is? There, there is only the mention of the creator God who is constantly trying out new plans and failing. He creates the world and fails. He creates Adam and Eve and fails. He creates the Garden of Eden, and that doesn't work. He creates a human species and fails. So he brings the flood. He saves a human being whose first act is to get drunk. He chooses a people with whom he constantly quarrels. That is the creator God. The God, utterly infinite, utterly unapproachable, utterly spiritual, we don't hear of that God. That God won't turn to us. It is inconceivable that he would ever turn to us. That God is all that ever was and is and will be into infinity and eternity. How could that God conceivably relate to us? It's the God of the Bible that we relate to. So I can't make the step beyond creation to the infinite God, but I can certainly relate to the God of the Bible. I talk to him all the time. And complain all the time. <laughs> what do you mean by God failed at these different steps? Well, he, he creates the world, and then he has to destroy it by flood. He gives Adam and Eve a garden to till, and they ruin the things. And in many ways, that's his failure, too. He sends a flood, saves a family, but in the aftermath, there is this horrible scene between the sons, the grandson and the father. Then he chooses a people, and they're constantly at odds with him. That's the role of God in history, making plans, 
seeing plans foiled. There's constant tension between God and the humans he has created. That's not a terribly glorious picture of a deity, is it? Well, that's the God that we relate to, the Jews anyway. Beyond that God, there's got to be some infinite being. The Bible doesn't talk about it, although Jewish mysticism does. Kabbalah. Ah, yes. In the Book of Lights, where you deal with Kabbalah, the mentor of the main character, Gershon, says, you do not care to know of the great rabbis who were filled with poetry and contradictions. What kind of poetry and contradictions does he mean? The rabbis of the Talmud were filled with poetry and contradiction. They had a very open-eyed, hard-nosed way of looking at the world. They, they were not fundamentalists. They were open to all kinds of ideas, and they said things that would upset us today. One of the great things about learning the Jewish tradition is that you come to understand the notion of maximum flexibility inside a closed world. The daring of some of those rabbis is truly astonishing. The poetry has to do with flights of the imagination and how they interpreted the Bible in the broadest way conceivable. There's an enormous spectrum of thought in rabbinic literature, from absolutely literalist readings of the text to the most imaginative readings. It's a very, very rich system of ideas filled with contradicting views, which is very exciting for a writer. It all fell to pieces in the modern period when it faced secularism. In the wake of Darwin and Nietzsche came Jewish fundamentalism, which didn't exist in the pre-modern world. Newton and Darwin did it to Judaism just as they did it to Christianity. Fundamentalism is a Western religious reaction to Darwin. The text freezes. Ideas freeze. Because the alternative is a real terror. The terror that we are not the center of the universe and that it's all a series of odd accidents. Because for it to be a series of odd accidents contradicts the entire history of Judaism. Absolutely, absolutely. Therefore, you have the development of Jewish fundamentalism. It comes along and says, this isn't a series of odd accidents. Just read the first chapters of Genesis. Then the modernist says in response, the first chapter of Genesis is a metaphor. And the Jewish fundamentalist answers, it's not a metaphor. It's the word of God. A metaphor means some, that somebody somewhere else can come and write another metaphor. But the word of God cannot be changed. This is one, one major discourse in contemporary Judaism. Is that part of the reason you named your work The History of the Jews Wanderings? Yes. We have wandered a great deal and have been in contact with most of the great cultures of the world in a variety of ways. I also wrote Wanderings before I wrote the Book of Lights because I wanted to know who I was when I got to Korea. That's what the Book of Lights is all about. It's my encounter with another culture, a non-Western culture. It's also my encounter with the horrible event that Western culture dropped on Eastern culture, the atomic bomb. I did all that exploring for wanderings before I wrote the Book of Lights because I needed to know who I was. So how did your two years in Korea shape you as a person and a writer? Oh, it transformed me, totally. I I'm still trying to figure out what that was all about. 
When I went to Korea, I was a very uh, coherent human being in the sense that I had a model of what was. I had a map. I knew I was a Jew. I had been through Jewish theological seminary and was ordained. I knew who I was as a member of Western culture, and I knew who I was as an American. I had a passion for America. When I was in high school, history, I was one of the winners of the Hearst National American History Contest. About 30,000 kids participated, nine winners only. When I went to Asia, Japan, Korea, other parts of Asia, I visited as an American soldier, and it all came unglued. It all became relativized. Everything turned upside down, and that upside down is what I explored in the Book of Lights, which was written from an American point of view. The next book about Asia, I Am the Clay, was written from an Asian point of view. And those two books so far are my explorations of that world. My time in Asia utterly transformed me and left me with nothing but questions for which I'm still struggling to find answers. What are some of those questions? Well, let me give you an example. I remember realizing one day in Japan, after just having gone through some of the temples in Kyoto, that I was in a world that didn't hate Jews. Even today, with all the anti-Semitic books that are in the bookstores, the Japanese do not hate Jews. It was a very exhilarating experience to find myself in a world where I wasn't being judged for what I was. I was only another white face. The irony was that this was a pagan world. It was a world that my scriptures told me to avoid, to condemn. So in one sense, the named enemy was the one who embraced you the most. Exactly. I I remember a scene where I was visiting a temple, and I saw an old Japanese man praying. He had a long white beard and a fedora hat and long brown coat. He was praying with such intensity that the first thing I recalled were the old men in the synagogue I grew up in. On the night of Yom Kippur, the most sacred night of the year, they would pray this way with the same intensity as that man. I remember saying to myself at the time, what am I seeing here? Is this man praying to an idol? And what is the God that I pray to doing at this moment? Is, is he answering his prayers? If not, why not? When are you ever going to see greater devotion in prayer? And if the God I pray to is listening to this old pagan's prayer, then what are Judaism and Christianity all about? I had dozens of experiences like that every week, cultural encounters. The Koreans had lost over a million people during the war, which is just staggering. I remember saying to myself, why did these people suffer? They were just in the way of empires. It's one thing to read about it in the newspapers, but it's another to actually stand there and see it. I remember my father once saying, Jews suffer because they decided they were different. You're going to be different. People are going to point at you, and they're going to make you pay the price for it. He believed we were different. And though he didn't like to pay the price, he said he would pay the price if he had to. That's the sort of thing that happened to me again and again for 
16 months while I was in Asia. I was totally transformed by it. It not only relativized my Jewishness, it relativized my Americanness and my Westernness simultaneously. It set everything into specific cultural contexts. And at the same time, it taught me that my culture could be viewed from outside its parameters by another culture and be seen in an altogether different way. What happened was that I began to see my culture from the outside. When that happens to your head, you are never the same again. Once you were outside your culture with a different perspective, what was it that you learned? You have to get outside of your culture for a significant period of time and get inside the culture that has brought you outside of your own culture. And I did just that. I read, I talked to Asians, I befriended them, I listened to them. Once you cut through the veneer of politeness and their own hesitations, you get close to them and see the sameness, even though it's another world. You spoke of complaining to God, and in your writings there are characters who shout at God. It seems to be more acceptable for Jews to do this than for non-Jews. Well, the, the tone is set immediately in the Bible with Abraham. He has this long talk with God and tries to change God's mind regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. Suppose there are some decent people there, he says. Well, what are you going to do, kill them all? Well, that's pretty audacious for Abraham, I think. After all, it's God. It's God he's been bargaining with. It may be the creator God who doesn't get his or her way all the time, but it's still God. Of course, the first grave lament, the one that sets the tone for all the laments in Jewish history, is the book of Job. Now, the book of Job is about a thousand years into Israelite history. That's quite a note to strike, the book of Job. It was struck because there was a sense that the covenant relationship was not working. At least it certainly was not working in this world. Do you mean not working in terms of reciprocity? That's what covenantal relationships are all about. I do something, you do something. If I do something and you don't, you've broken the covenant. It's as blunt as that. It's a treaty. I keep my end, you keep your end. If you don't, the treaty is broken. By the time of the book of Job, there was a sense that the covenant was not working anymore. Much of it had to do with the Maccabean Wars and the awful suffering that the Jews went through. But for whatever the reason, the writer of the book of Job said, the covenant is not working. It is one long complaint. It amounts to Job taking God to court. In the Jewish worldview, the metaphor for complaint to God is the idea of taking God to court because Judaism is a legal system. Now I know I'm going to lose this case because you're God and I'm a single human being. But I'm going to take you to court anyway, and I'm going to let the judges know how I feel, what the charges are. I'll lose, but it's, going, it's what I'm going to do anyway. Remember, the book was canonized, which already tells you that this attitude is acceptable to the rabbis of the Talmud. To canonize a book in the ancient world was to guarantee its permanent existence. Not to have it canonized was to virtually guarantee its oblivion. We've had complaints about this all through Jewish history. 
Books of complaint were written in the wake of the Crusades, the massacres in the 1600s in Eastern Europe and the Ukraine. This is now part of the Jewish tradition, complaining against God. I once talked about this to Norwegian clergy. They invited me to a conference, and I told them about this tradition of Jewish complaint. Some of them were aghast over it. But then they said, I wish we had done this a year or so ago. They had an awfully tragic ferry accident where hundreds of Norwegians perished. And when their parishioners came to them, they didn't know quite how to handle it. My response, and the Jewish response, is to yell at God. There used to be a tradition, which may still be in existence in some Jewish communities, where if you had a complaint against God, you stopped the service on Saturday. You went up to the ark, you opened the ark, and you stood there shouting at God until the rabbi finally led you away. The thing that's so fascinating about this is that it happens inside a system of faith. If you're going to rage at God, the master of the universe, you'd better have some kind of faith as to what he's essentially like. Well, you you shout out of faith, not because you don't have faith. If you don't have faith, you don't have anyone to shout at. There's so much richness to the Jewish traditions. I'm fascinated by it. Yes, well, remember how old it is. As you think about the big picture of the book of Job, is there anything else you glean from it other than the court docket concept? The book of Job is a metaphor par excellence of the Jewish tradition of complaint against God. A poet, a great poet, must have suffered terribly. He took one of the oldest stories known to him and used it for his own purposes. The story was about a man who was tested by the gods. The author of the book of Job made that ancient story the framing device for his poem. Here's a man of faith. God destroys his family and virtually destroys him. But the man of faith does not lose his faith. He's restored by God, lives on, enjoys a new family and new wealth. That is the epic. Between those two elements of the story, the poet inserts what we call the book of Job. Job is sitting in torment, comforted by his friends, lamenting his sorry state, and hoping to die. He pours his heart out. And the response of the poet was, you're right, the covenant isn't working, not visibly, and not on this earth. But it's working in some cosmic fashion. And we don't fully understand it. That was not the biblical view. The biblical view was that the covenant was working visibly. In the time of David, in the time of Solomon, in the time of the kings, if you disobeyed, you were punished. And if you obeyed, you expected to be rewarded. The book of Job insists that covenant was not working anymore. That it was no longer effective for some reason on the earthly scheme of things, though it was working in some cosmic fashion. First of all, that's not terribly satisfying to the earthling. And second of all, it's very intellectual. It satisfies the head, but not the heart. That's the answer of the writer of the book of Job. That's one answer to the breakdown of the covenant. The second answer was the rabbinic one, and that is, the covenant may not be working, But it's going to work again in the future, and we have to live our lives in the meantime in accordance with God's laws. So that's the idea of the Messiah? Yes. 
Redemption was deferred to some future time. The third answer was an apocalyptic one. That is, it's not working, but it's going to work next week because God is sending somebody to get it to work right. That's what I call hot messianism. The rabbinic version is cooled down messianism, deferred messianism. Hot messianism became Christianity. There's no such idea as loss of faith because you complain against God. What do you mean that there's no such thing as a loss of faith? As far as I can recall, there's only one instance in all of Talmudic literature of a rabbi who lost faith in God. That's 700 years of Talmudic literature. The rabbi was Elisha ben Abiyah. He once saw a man send his son up a ladder to chase away a mother bird so he could get the fledglings. He did this because the biblical law is that you are not allowed to catch both the fledglings and the mother bird at the same time. As the boy did this, he fell and broke his head and died. Now, the problem in this particular instance is that in the biblical verse, you are promised that if you do this, you will have long life. Elisha ben Abiyah was with another rabbi when he saw this. The other rabbi was aghast, but said nothing and ran away crying. Elisha shouted, there is no judge, there is no justice, which was his way of saying God does not work the way he claims. He maintained that attitude and he was excommunicated. But even so, some of his students still followed him. There's no such thing in the ancient world as not believing in God or the gods, unless you are a member of one of the Greek intellectual societies. Even Socrates believed in some form of a deity. He didn't believe in the statuary of Athens, but he had his own notion of what a deity was and how it functioned. To believe there is not any deity is a modern idea. I read the Old Testament, and there are images of sacrifice, ritual, slaughter, law-keeping to the minutiae. Then, through centuries, the most conservative branches of Judaism tried to follow that. What do you do with the idea of sacrifice and the law-keeping? Maimonides was a 12th-century rabbi and philosopher who was born in Spain and lived in Egypt. He was very uncomfortable with all the rules of the sacrificial system. He said it was just a stage in Israelite development. The fact of the matter is that Maimonides probably didn't grasp the notion that there was no other way to worship God in the ancient world. You worshiped God through giving gifts, and the the gift was something precious to you. One of the most precious possessions was the cattle you owned. If you felt you had sinned, you offered God a gift by way of propitiation. That was the notion behind the sacrificial system. Blood in the ancient world was considered a cleansing liquid because it was the liquid of life. They saw that if you lost blood, you died. Therefore, it was the blood of life, and it was used to purify. As far as we can gather, that was the notion behind the sacrificial system. It was part of the way the Jews worshipped until the destruction of the Second Temple. I know Jews who are sophisticated scholars and very religious who want to see the sacrificial system reestablished. I don't. 
So what does it mean then for you to worship, Dr. Potok? Well, it's to ask, to remember, to lament, to complain, to seek one's own self and that which is beyond the self. Prayer is the trajectory and the perspective, enabling you to locate your own sense of self in this trajectory. If you don't have a sense of where you are from, you don't have a sense of where you are at. And if you don't have a sense of where you're at, you have no sense of self. And if you have no sense of self, you are very frightened as a human being. For you, worship involves prayer and Jewish tradition, but is worship bigger than that? Is it part of your everyday living, your writing, for example? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Writing is an act of worship, too, and learning. For some Jews, learning is more of an act of worship than worship itself. There is an issue in Jewish law as to whether or not you may interrupt someone for prayers when they are learning. Some rabbis say yes, and some say no. You said writing is an act of worship. You've also written that nothing is sacred to the writer save the act of writing. Is that a paradox? Well, there's a difference between worship and sanctity. In worship, you enter into a relationship with somebody or something. The worship is in the relationship. I don't think there's something objectively sacred about anything that I write. But the act of creating has an aura of sanctity to me. The moments when I lose myself, that's what I dream of, to get lost in the writing. Those relational moments, the the arc of relationship between being and the writing, the thing being created, is as close as I can get to the essence of worship. I feel the same way, for example, when I'm in a synagogue and I'm lost in prayer. I don't think there is any intrinsic sanctity to the particular words, because if circumstances dictate, I would have no objection to changing the words. There's a major discussion going on in my synagogue right now as to whether to change the words in a prayer that is 2,000 years old. That prayer only mentions the patriarchs. Well, what about the matriarchs? The discussion is whether to include not only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Now that's a major change. But there's no frozen sanctity for me in that old formula. The sanctity lies in the relationship between myself as a human being and the text in the act of worship. That arc, again, that trajectory, that is the sacred moment. The same thing occurs to the writer. That is the mystery. That's the lone moment of awe. That's where we somehow come out of our mortal self. That's the moment of the transcendent. In your novel, Davida's Harp, Jacob Daw says to Davida, a writer is a strange instrument of our species, a harp of sorts, fine-tuned to the dark contradictions of life. Then that's what I'm talking about. A harp is a bunch of strings, and it's nothing unless someone is playing it. It is the melody of the harp that is the mystery. Sometimes if you leave a harp out in a strong wind, the wind will make the melody. In Los Angeles somewhere, there's a harp that is a sculpture which reacts to winds. The harp is physical. The wind is physical, even though we can't see it. The music, what's the music? 
The music is the relationship between the harp and the wind. The writing is the relationship between the writer and the piece of paper. Worship is the relationship between the worshiper and the text. Can a writer such as yourself ever retire? I don't know how writers retire. (laughs) You see, I don't know how writers are made. (laughs) Nobody who is in a profession and transfers at a certain point and climbs the ladder gets to the top. The profession dictates the time frame. Writing does not dictate a time frame. There can be long periods of time when you are not writing at all and you are sitting there looking at a window and thinking. It's as mysterious to me now as it was when I was 16, 17 years old. I don't know what retirement means because there's no time frame for a writer. I may decide I don't want to write anymore, so okay, I'm finished writing. But that doesn't mean it's going to turn off. All it means is I'm going to lie there and toss and turn, and sentences are going to go through my head as they always do, and sooner or later I'm going to pick up the pen and write. I have no illusions about writing. It's not something I do. It's something I'm driven to do, and I don't fully understand it. Writing seems to be more than just writing on a pad of paper or typing at a keyboard. When you're looking out the window and imagining, that's part of writing too? Oh, yes. And it's the fact that any time you encounter anything, you're always looking to see if you can use it, rephrase it, restructure it. The head works constantly in terms of structure, creating form. I don't know that anyone who is a writer can get out of that. If you wake up one day and you don't have that anymore, that's the time you retire. What do you see on the horizon for humanity as we approach the end of the 20th century? Well, it's generally our fate as human beings that as we approach the end of a century, we go collectively mad. And as we approach the end of a millennium, we grow collectively even madder. That is what is happening to us today. More fundamentalism, more visions, more insecurities, more madness. And you can see it all over the planet. We just have to get over this hurdle of the next few years. What's interesting to me is that these cycles are entirely artificial. Nature knows no calendar. Nature simply hums along. We're the ones who have created the calendar, and we react to it. So we think some erroneous event is about to occur because of some map we've imposed on it. In all candor, what I'm hoping is that we make it to the end of the century and turn the corner. The last century has been the most awful century in the history of the millennium. I hope and I pray that we are at the beginning of the end of that awfulness as we turn to the next millennium. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. 